0: Welcome to another episode of V for Vaccination. We hope everyone is having a wonderful and healthy day. Today, we'll be discussing the FDA approval process for vaccines. We also have a special guest with us today, John Thomas. John is a freelance writer, musician, and professor at the Kunipiak University School of Law. He holds a BA and a JD from the University of Arizona and an LLM and an MPH from Yale University. Hello, John. Thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. thank you for having me. So to start off, what exactly is the FDA and what do they do, if you can like, explain a little bit more? Well, the FDA is the Food and Drug Administration. It became the Food and Drug Administration in 1930, but it existed before that in 1906. There was a Safe Food and Drug Act and there was a precursor to the FDA. And the FDA's charge is to make sure that food and drugs that we ingest are safe in simple fashion with respect to drugs. Drugs are any substance that's designed to uh, treat or uh, prevent or make less severe any kind of illness. And the FDA's presumption is that a drug is unsafe until the manufacturer proves it's safe. So the FDA has become the guardian, if you will, uh, for the safety of drugs. Before we get to inject stuff into our veins or our doctors prescribe pills or what have you, the manufacturer has to demonstrate to the FDA that that substance is indeed safe, not only safe, but also effective, as opposed to uh, other drugs on the market and also as opposed to um, placebos. So it's our guardian. Um, It's generally done a pretty good job. And So as our guardians, they have to approve our vaccine. So could you walk us through what the FDA approval process is exactly for vaccines? Um, It's the same for vaccine as it is for any other kind of medication. It typically takes somewhere between six and seven years. The typical cost to a manufacturer in the standard process is about a billion dollars these years. So there are three clinical trial segments first, second, and third series of trials. Um, the first one lasts about a year and a half. The second one lasts about two and a half years and the third one again, about two and a half years. So the first is a small clinical trial, usually about hundred people. And it's designed just to determine whether the drug has any bad effects. It doesn't determine whether it treats very well. It just doesn't have any negative impact. So the first thing we have to do is to deter- administer it to volunteers and say, you know, I, you know I, I, didn't, I didn't break out in hives or I didn't die or I didn't have any bad outcome. So make sure it's safe. The second, so that's about a year and a half. The second trial, about two and a half years, we're gonna determine whether it's effective. The third trial, another two and a half years. So we're, again, we're in the six to seven year total period. The third trial, once we've had it, it's, it's safe in the first trial, in the second trial, it actually treats the illness. Then we're gonna work on dosages and comparison to other drugs on the market and then the manufacturer applies for approval. Vaccines work the same way except in our current state when our vaccine, the COVID vaccines, all the manufacturer's vaccines approved in the United States got emergency youth authorization rather than standard approval. So emergency youth authorization compresses some of the time. The big difference is this. So in the standard approval process, the manufacturer does not begin manufacturing bulk. Of the, of the drug or the vaccine, whatever it is, until the approval process is done, that six or seven years. In the emergency youth authorization, the manufacturer starts manufacturing the drug while it's conducting the clinical trials. So that once we get approval, and the approval will be a little earlier until I'll talk about it in a minute, the manufacturer is ready to distribute. That's how we get it so much faster. Now you have to ask yourself, how can a manufacturer that's spending all this time, energy, and money going through the approval process, have the resources to actually produce a drug at the same time in case the thing works because it might not work. And the reason it happened in this case is because as of the end of last year, the US federal government had invested almost $12 billion into the vaccine, right? The US government pre-bought all these vaccines, right? We'll give we'll give $2 billion to Pfizer right now. We'll pre-buy them so that you can, you have an incentive to build them you won't go make the vaccine. You won't go broke if it doesn't work. So we got to compress it to less than a year, which was just extraordinary, but it's because the US government was able to provide the resources. So the manufacturer, Pfizer and the others, were able to conduct the clinical trials over the course of, of some months, right? Starting last spring and getting emergency approval early this fall, so six months, or whatever it was, somewhere around there, while they were producing. So they got emergency youth authorization. We're still gonna conduct clinical trials. Pfizer had reported that it will apply for full approval this month, this April of 2021, and expect full approval by the end of the year. So really what's happened is we short-circuited the process about a year or so. Well, we short-circuited the process five or six years, but from the time you start producing to the time you are able to get full approval, probably about a year or so, um, because of the federal government's injection of an incredible amount of resources into the process. So what is the legality regarding mandating vaccines or even masks, since there's been some outcry about that as well? Um, The ability for governments, both state and federal governments, to mandate vaccines um, has been uh, clear since early 1900s with the United States Supreme Court case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which was the uh, smallpox vaccine. The government has something known as police power that is the ability to protect its members, is able to order emergency measures like vaccine, like quarantine, um, like wearing masks. So our government has the authority to mandate masks and and again, either at the federal or state level with one exception, because the vaccines right now are approved for emergency use only, not full approval. Most legal authorities, I'm one of them, I'm authority, believe that the government can't can't mandate that vaccine until there's full approval. So we're probably nearly a year away from that mandate. Um, having said that, we know the Rutgers University in New Jersey has mandated vaccines for students returning. There have been teachers' unions uh, and other in- institutions that have mandated vaccines. And those cases are currently in the court system to see whether government officials are able to mandate vaccines. Um, so anyway, we can make that mandate the vaccine. It's not clear whether we can do that yet. I think we have to wait for full approval, but the courts may prove me wrong. We could mandate masks, we could mandate passports, like you know, sort of a vaccine passport. We haven't yet. And I, it's just political and cultural, right? There's, there's a it's not the will among well, our, our, legisl- our rep- elected representatives to mandate this. If you look at the polls nationwide, including the Quinnipiac poll, you can see that uh, a super majority of people support mandatory vaccines. A super majority of people support mandatory masks, but we have a very vocal minority who oppose it. And uh, a lot of the vocal minority have 50 seats in the Senate and won't vote for any of the uh, measures. So yeah, it's a a political conundrum rather than a scientific or medical one. The medical reasons are clear. So it's a political um, inability to, I think, do what's right. And I'm going to go off on a slight tangent, but it's not that far. So I've been doing a lot of work with respect to World War II. I wrote a book about women in World War II. It changed my life in a lot of ways. Um, sold around the world. NPR and BBC did documentaries on it. And it's about to be made into a dramatic movie adaptation, which I'm very excited about. Uh, and that sort of versed me in World War II. And I'm also working on a podcast right now about a concert hall that was built in London during World War II. So i become immersed in World War II. And in World War II, nobody whined about anything, right? You have ration cards for whether you can have gasoline, whether you can get tires, whether you can get meat. Um, You couldn't get many new clothes because a lot of the fabrics were used to reinforce airplane wings. Um, You had to shut off your lights at night in London. Uh, You you had to sleep in the the underground subway stations at times, right? And nobody complained. They didn't complain. They did it because it was for the common good. And today, you know, your neighbors won't put on a mask. And I used to say, people won't wear a 50, 50 cent mask to you know, help to uh, make more safe their neighborhoods. It's not 50 cents. Every township in Connecticut will give you a free mask if you go down to the town hall. So people won't, some people won't put on a free mask. And so what if, it, what if you really believe it doesn't work that much? So what, right? It can make your neighbors happy. You wear a little piece of paper on your face when you go to the grocery store. Now we know the science is really very evident that they work. Um, but we see, I think it's just a change in culture. I, I look at the times when people made huge sacrifices for the common good, and I look at the time now when many of us won't make the smallest of sacrifices for the common good. And it, it really um, it really saddens me and it worries me. And I think that's, that's what it's about. It's about people unwilling to make the tiniest of sacrifices. And so you young people doing uh, this kind of work Right information. That's our hope. I'm, you know, I'm thrilled to be here with you. You're going to save the world. I can't do it. I'm too old. Thank you so much for saying that. We appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, we are very appreciative. So to go off what you mentioned earlier about passports, we've been seeing a lot on the news about vaccine passports and how some businesses are thinking of requiring them. And we're also seeing some states, that are for and, and against them. What are your thoughts on this, on a personal level and a legality standpoint? On a personal level, I just think it's fantastic, right? I think, um, well, one, it just, it gives, we vaccine, we have been vaccinated and have the passport, the ability to go places that maybe we otherwise couldn't, right? Um, but also I think it provides incentive to get vaccinated. And one of the things I worry about now is we still need to be careful Right, Wear a mask and be socially distant, even though we've been vaccinated, because we want to make sure that we don't endanger our loved ones and our neighbors. Um, and we may not even be get the benefit of going to restaurants and such, because um, no one knows whether we're vaccinated. So I think it gives people incentive. I get this vaccination card; it's going to let me travel across state lines, right? Uh, Vermont still has its quarantine in effect, right? I think it's 14 days or whatever other states do. I get a vaccine card; it would be fantastic. So from a personal level, I think it would be great. Uh, from a legal level, absolutely, we can mandate a, a vaccine passport. Uh, the same way we, we require that you have a driver's license, right, you have to have a driver's license to drive a car. We, we, can, we can clearly legally have the public health authority, both at the federal and state level, to mandate that people have this to get on an airplane or to go in a closed restaurant or um, to ride in the subway or whatever it is, right? So it's just, again, it's the political will. I, I'd love to see us have the political will to do this. Um, and so someone here is going to get their vaccine today, when I got my second vaccine a few weeks ago, it really felt like a gift. Um, and um, I, I would love to see us do it. So I, I hope that through public campaigns, especially telling a personal stories, that we can come to believe that the vaccine is a good thing. And having some proof would be beneficial, it would make it so much easier for us to travel. Um, and, it, you know, it would make me happier. I, I, I don't really want to get on an airplane yet and sit there with 350 people breathing the same air for several hours, right? Even though I know it's filtered and there's good science behind it. But if I knew everybody on there had been vaccinated, yeah, that'd be okay with me. But I, I'll never know that unless we have this requirement. Yeah, true that. Um, But do you think that the passport could be done internationally? Because, for example, I'm Italian and I know that in my country, the vaccine are not as, uh, like at the time, like are not as like given to people as much as in the US. So what do you think about it? Yeah, so I have many, many friends in Italy because I'm a musician and I typically play a lot of music festivals in Italy um, all summer. Um, This will be the first summer. Well, last summer was the first summer and about 10 years, I didn't play a music festival in Italy. And I know that there's a new lockdown in Italy. France just has another new lockdown. So I think the passport would work internationally, but I also think that we need other countries to be able to organize the vaccine in the way the U.S. has. I think the U.S. was really weak in responding to the virus, but has been excellent in vaccinating people, especially in 200 million vaccines probably in the first 100 days of the Biden administration. That's just amazing. So I I think the the, the passport will work internationally, but we also have to have um, better access to vac- the vaccines internationally. And I also think it means that globalism is, is for real, especially when it comes to health. And the United States, although we may vaccine, vaccinate our, our own population first, we need to help the rest of the world. This is a global issue. Um, borders don't stop this illness. And so I, I think it needs international cooperation, including providing, producing and uh, distributing vaccines before it becomes effective. Thank you. And then you talked a little bit about the FDA process for COVID-19 vaccine, but there's a lot of concerns regarding the COVID-19 vaccine being rushed. What would you say to someone that thinks the vaccine was rushed? Um, I'm going to say it wasn't rushed, but it was done speedily. And the reason it was done speedily is because the U.S. government put this $12 billion, at least, behind the effort. I mean, what it shows is what if we fund our scientists properly, what they can accomplish, right? I mean, I look at this and think, wow, what if we did this for, I don't know, uh, birth defects or breast cancer, or my own case, prostate cancer or something else, right? If we dump resources, human resources, including mental resources, scientific minds, and a bunch of money into the project, we can accomplish extraordinary things in this country. So what I would tell people is yes, was much faster because never in the history of the country have we provided this kind of resource and support for the development of any kind of medication, including the vaccine. So it's really a success story. And you don't need to look any farther than the current numbers, right? About 200 million vaccines, very, very few negative outcomes. Have there been any people who got a vaccine and died? Yeah, did any of them die because of the vaccine? No, the CDC reported just last week, all evaluated, all the data, there are no reported deaths from a vaccine. Now, that doesn't happen very often, but there are none here, 200 million. So if you think about it, we have well over half a million people who died from the illness. We've given 200 million vaccines, and there have been no significantly negative outcomes. The only negative outcomes have been people who have some kinds of allergies and have to receive treatment right after the vaccine if they have a negative uh, response to it. But so In in addition to the vaccine being supported so greatly, we've also had one of the biggest clinical trials in the world, right? We've had 200 million people get this thing, and it's not hurting anybody. So this is the best case scenario. We've gotten so much data in so little time, but you're never going to have a better bunch of data showing that a vaccine is safe than you have today. Uh, So we're, we're just really fortunate that all these elements came together. So yeah, just look out at the data. Look how many people got it. Look how... They're all doing well um, and they're gonna be able to live fuller lives than you, so go get the vaccine. Thank you for that response. And if you want to know more information about COVID-19 vaccine, please check out our episode four and where we talk about the vaccine and everything about it. And also in episode five, where we go into a little bit more detail about how the vaccine actually works and how each individual vaccine works. Thank you for listening. Tune in next episode when we discuss HPV. For more information or to submit any questions for us, check out our website, vforvaccination.wordpress.com, and check us out on Instagram at vforvax. Thanks!